question the important issues of today and try to find a sort of spiritual connection? Welcome to Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman as your host. Religion deals with the most fundamental issues humans face. There are arguments for and against the existence of God, where religion belongs in everyday life and a number of questions left unanswered. This is where it all gets discovered. Now, here is Father John Holloman. Hello, good to be back again. Um, Normally, this would be the last show of a 13-week engagement, but I've been extended for another 13 weeks. So it seems uh, towards the end of the show today, I'm going to talk a little bit about what I hope to do in the future. Last week, we were just coming up to the point where there was a shift from Saul to David. Um, Frustrated every turn in his efforts to track down David, Saul was at last cornered by the Philistines on the plain of Jezreel, at the foot of Mount Gilboa. In desperation, he seeks out the witch of Endor, only to encounter Samuel's ghost and the prophecy of doom, a moving story of the tragedy of Saul's last hours. We might ask why the ban on mediums, which Saul uh, himself had instituted, um, and broke his own ban. Because we have met folks around today who still call themselves mediums. But for the um, people of uh, Saul and David's time, uh, a medium was thought to um, speak, communicate with the dead, which... um, put them at odds with Yahweh, who was considered to be the leader of the people of Israel, the legitimate leader. Um, Mediums, in other words, were usurping um, God's prerogative. And This will come back again throughout the history of Israel. Um, Who is going to be first in our lives? God or some other um, presumed power, uh, which the um, pagan gods claimed. Um, But also uh, the idea of... of, um, being able to, in other words, we don't need God to find out what's going on. Um, now we come to David. There's an important event um, in the 16th chapter of the first book of Samuel. And Samuel, with the horn of oil in hand, anointed him, David, in the midst of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. 
Now that's a significant handover of the kingship from Saul to David. It would be submitted in the very near future by Saul's death at the hands of the, of the Philistines, or actually at his own hand, to save himself from being tortured by the Philistines. Um, but the idea that the, the Spirit of the Lord was upon David from that point forward, was it was a continuous thing. It wasn't one of these... Uh, periodic episodes that the ecstatic prophets um, would have. It wasn't a, a question of the inspiration of a, of a judge who would have the spirit of the Lord to rally the people to def defend themselves against a common enemy. Um, but that would be it. David now has the continuous spirit of the Lord with him. We're entering what his, uh, biblical historians refer to as the court history, the um, counts of David and, and his court. Um, this is kind of special um, passage in the Old Testament because it's one of the few that has a first-hand account. It claims a first-hand account of, of the events being described. This is not some story that's been handed down from generation to generation. Um, it's been portrayed as something that's being um, contemporary with the writer. And also that um, it's probably the oldest segment of the Old Testament that we have in terms of what was written down as an eyewitness account. And in this court history, which runs from approximately the second book of Samuel, chapter 9 through 20, and first Kings, chapters 1 and 2, here Israel is performed, or transformed from a tribal league, a confederacy, to a miniature empire modeled after the surrounding nations. David's problem was to maintain tribal unity within a new nation state. Now, during the outlaw period, when Saul was after him in the wilderness of Judah, um, David became uh, an ally of the Philistines. Now, this was something uh, important because... Um, the Philistines were in the Iron Age. The Hebrews were still in the Bronze Age. Their weapons were made of bronze. Um, and an iron sword certainly had an advantage over a bronze one. So David allied himself with the Philistines for about seven years. 
and this was after Saul's death. And he learned their military tactics. He learned the use of their weapons. And this was going to be a good preparation for what was to come. Um, David was a shrewd politician. He was stopped at nothing to achieve his ambitions. Even when he was king at Hebron after Saul's death, it was as a Philistine vassal. He established a claim on Saul's throne by marrying his daughter, Michal, and eliminating Saul's other descendants, which is what it sounds like. He had them killed. Once he had consolidated his position among the Israelites, he turned on his former friends, the Philistines, and in the process, by using their own tactics and weapons against them, um, he turned the tables on them and broke their control over Canaan once and for all. He then turned on his other neighbors, except for the king of Tyre, with whom he made a treaty. David's stroke of genius during this period was to capture the city of Jerusalem, which had never been a part of any tribal territory. So it was kind of a district of Columbia for his new kingdom. Thus, it was a neutral site for his capital. <clears throat> it became his political capital that bypassed the tribal rivalries. <clears throat> he also um, did a shrewd religious maneuver. He rescued the Ark of the Covenant from its obscurity since the Battle of Shiloh, um, where it was captured by the Philistines, and brought it to Jerusalem with great pomp and ceremony. What this meant was that he had consolidated in Jerusalem both the political and religious center of Israel. <clears throat> now David, after he became king of not just Hebron, but the whole of, of, uh, of his, God's people, he made two faithful decisions. The first one was that he took a census, which was the basis for military conscription for taxation, and for, for forced labor. Now, this was considered a sin because the number of God's people was considered to be a divine secret. And he was trying to, in effect, make himself some kind of God figure. But he also adopted a policy of forcing his own subjects into work camps, conscripted to build the things that he needed for his new kingdom. <clears throat> Further, his own lust and murder, lust with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah so that Bathsheba had become pregnant and David uh, wanted to make her one, one of his wives so that um, 
It's interesting that the author of the so-called court history did not make light of, of his blemishes. All of his faults and failures are included along with his strong points. Um, and that's in itself an interesting feature. Um, his weak point, one of his weak points was his own children who he doted over and spoiled rotten. And that would corrupt them into being um, his adversaries. His Absalom instigated a revolt against him that nearly cost him his crown. And it is an event that reveals pent-up resentment against all the changes that David had brought about. Um <clears throat> Uh, there were a lot of people who rallied to Absalom, and it um, forced David to flee Jerusalem over to the uh, eastern shore of the River Jordan, <clears throat> where he set up his camp and planned a campaign of rega regaining Jerusalem. And it was in the course of the fight <clears throat> that um, Absalom was um, his hair got caught in the, the limbs of a tree and he was hanging, dangling above the ground. And it was uh, David's general who came upon this and um, killed him. Well, thinking that David would be happy to hear about all this, uh, was a big mistake because when David found out about the death of Absalom, he went into mourning and he wept for Absalom. Um, saying in effect, why couldn't it have been me instead of you? Um, <clears throat> But even though the revolt was put down, it shows the, the willingness of a group of large segment of the population to go with someone other than David. In time, his weaknesses were forgotten and his greatness was extolled. So his rule came to be looked upon as the pattern of God's future kingdom on earth. What he left behind was a deep-seated conflict between two concepts of Israel. The people of the covenant, are they to be people of a covenant or citizens of a state? I think we have a break coming up here. So uh, I'll rejoin you in a few minutes. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. 
If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. Are you satisfied with your life? Do you know that more should be possible? Listen for the Access Consciousness Radio Show with the creators of Access, Gary Douglas and Dr. Dane here. Our program offers pragmatic tools to change things in your life that you haven't been able to change until now. What if all of life could come to you with ease, joy, and glory? Tune in to Access Consciousness Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. Who are you, really? Are you the person you want to be, or are you the person that others want you to be? Think about that. We don't always recognize our gifts and potential because we stick to old methods of being and do what others in our lives tell us. It's time to break through. Listen for Rediscovering the Magic of Being with Marja. Each program connects you back to whom you were meant to be every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. You are tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to DefendingCatholicFaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Hello, good to see you again. Um, We're just coming to the end of David's reign. Um, And the question that hung in the air was, is Israel a people of the covenant, which is their religious identity, or are they merely citizens of a state? David's son, Solomon, who succeeded him on the throne, his claim to leadership was based solely on birth, son of David, and political influence, not charisma. From this point on, charisma would be the exclusive property of the prophets. Ambitious and such by nature, Solomon was a true diplomat. Knowing only palace life, he lacked the common touch that his father had. Due to a favorable international situation, there was a power vacuum in the Middle East at this time. He was able to embark on an ambitious building program. Now, the temple originally was his royal chapel. It took only seven years to build versus 13 years to build his own palace. It was designed by Canaanite architects. He built chariot cities, the most notable of them being Megiddo, which was right where two mountain ranges came together. in sort of in the middle of the country, which formed a kind of um, bottleneck 
any army going from Egypt up to the Fertile Crescent would have to pass through Megiddo because of the mountain ranges on either side. And vice versa, any army going in the opposite direction had to go through Megiddo. So it was a choke point um, and became the scene of a lot of military uh, battles. Um, David was um, had embarked on this ambitious building program. He built the temple. He built his own palace. He built the chariot city of Megiddo, which is uh, of consequence to us because it was a, a point where armies often clashed because it was the only way to get north to south or south to north. And it came to be known as um, Hara Megiddon, uh, otherwise known to us as Armageddon. So it became associated with climactic battles. Um, to pay for all of this expansion, he created tax districts that cut across boundaries. It was an attempt. Tempting to to think that this may have been also not just a way of raising taxes, but it could have been a way of of trying to belittle the tribal identities and their independence from each other, and identifying more with the political entity of the the kingdom. Um, but he also used forced labor. That was a common practice in the ancient world, that when one army conquered another, the soldiers you took captive were made slaves and put to work on your own projects. But apparently Solomon didn't have enough of those, so he began a faithful practice of um, conscripting his own people to build all of these things that he was expanding. And that was not going to exactly endear him to his people. Um, in 1 Kings, chapter 5, we have these words. He, meaning Solomon, discussed plants from the cedar on the Lebanon to the hyssop growing out of the wall. And he spoke about beasts, birds, reptiles, and fishes. Men came to hear Solomon's wisdom from all nations, sent by all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Um, so he became involved with all kinds of things. His reign was characterized by religious syncretism. It's a tendency that um, um, we still have with us to a certain extent. Um, if the people who are all around you have a certain worship, in the case of Palestine, it was the fertility of religion of Baal. Um, there's a temptation to say, well, I'm going to hedge my bets. And just in case the, the locals are right about all this, 
And Ball is in charge of fertility, which means he was responsible for crops and things like that. Um, I won't stop worshiping Yahweh. I'll include Ball in my religious practices. Syncretism. Um, he permitted his many foreign wives, for political reasons, to practice their native religion in Jerusalem. And he even built some shrines for them in the capital. Now, all of this added to pent-up social unrest, which came to a boil upon his death. The revolt actually started while Solomon was still alive. Jeroboam was an Ephraimite, and Ahijah was a prophet. And um, typically, the prophet anointed Jeroboam um, king. But this little revolt was temporarily squelched. The moral of it was to be drawn from this is that Israel was not meant to be a great political nation, but separated from all the others by her covenant calling. And increasingly, it will be the prophets who would perform the task of recalling the people to this fact from now on. Uh, the early prophets were not writing prophets. All things that we know about them are the stories handed down about them. Now, the Greek word prophetes means one who speaks for. The Hebrew word is nabi, which means God's spokesman. The idea of the prophet in the Old Testament was not some kind of uh, seer of the future, which there are some tendencies in that direction, but someone who spoke for God. And any predictions, some of which did not come true, had reference to the immediate future, which impinged upon the present. The primary concern of the prophets was with the present. It is the summons to the people to respond now. And this includes anyone who can interpret the meanings of historical experience, such as Moses. That's why he's included in the group of prophets, even though he doesn't act like some of the later prophets. Now, the word ecstasy comes from a Greek combination, ekstasis, meaning standing outside of, being possessed by the spirit of Yahweh. This type of prophecy was common among the Canaanites, so the practice was probably borrowed, but with a difference. The prophets of Yahweh were not soothsayers or clairvoyants, but they were active in the political sphere. There were three accepted channels for discerning the divine will in Israel. The first was dreams, especially in a holy place. One think of Jacob's ladder. Secondly, there were sacred dice, known by the names of Urim and Thurnim. Urim and Thummim. 
And finally, there was prophecy. There were groups of professional prophets who traveled about and charged a fee for their services. These became known as sons of the prophets. Now, when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam was presented with an ultimatum. All of this pent-up social unrest coming to a head. And he did not take well to this ultimatum. And he set off the explosion of pent-up social and religious frustrations. The ten northern tribes seceded. And Jeroboam returned from exile in Egypt to become the first king of the northern kingdom. But now notice that the word Israel now denotes a political entity, not covenantal. So this was a division into the two kingdoms, the northern and the southern. The southern consisted of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, which was the smallest of all the 12 tribes. Um, <clears throat> Jeroboam fortified his temporary capital at Shechem and also Penuel in the Transjordan. He established a religious foundation for his kingdom by setting up shrines at Bethel in the south near the Judah border and Dan in the north, both of which had already been noted as places of pilgrimage. Now, he made a fateful decision. He set up golden bulls at these shrines, which, if you remember, is uh, reminiscent of the golden calf during the Exodus and how Moses ground that up. But the point is that these two golden bulls led themselves to confusion between the worship of Yahweh and the worship of Baal. Um, which may not have been intended by Jeroboam, but then that's the law of unintended consequences. Once you get going, you have to be careful what you do. Now, they probably got away with all this because most of the army had joined the, them, the northern 12, 10 tribes, Plus, Egypt has started making incursions into the southern kingdom. So, for the next 50 years, there's a series of wars between the two states, Israel and Judah, and incursions from Egypt, and the rise of an aggressive Syria. Finally, Asa, as the king of Judah, Judah appealed to Syria against Israel with devastating consequences. It began a rapid turnover of kings of the northern kingdom, ending only with the coup d'etat by the commander of the northern army, a fellow by the name of Omri. Now, Omri pursued a policy of detente with Judah and followed the example of David and Solomon by forming an alliance with Phoenicia. This allowed him to concentrate his efforts on keeping the Syrians at bay and also to defeat the Moabites in the Transjordan.
uh, one of his more faithful decisions was to cement his uh, tie to the city of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, which was on the coast of the Mediterranean coast, um, by marriage of his son Ahab to Jezebel, who was a daughter of the Phoenician king. And Jezebel, of course, becomes a notorious character in the Old Testament. He also moved the capital to Samaria from Shechem. Now, all of this was completed during the reign of his own son. And the capital became a luxurious city due to the wealth of the northern kingdom. It was astride all of the trade routes between the Fertile Crescent and Egypt. So uh, it was involved a great deal with um, international trade, you might say. Whereas Judah and Benjamin were confined pretty much to the hill country. They were the country bumpkins, so to speak. Um, Eventually, Israel and Judah would team up against Syria in the Battle of Ramoth-Gilead, where Ahab lost his life. But before that happened, everyone joined forces to face the common enemy, Assyria, which was on the rise as, as a world empire. At the Battle of Karkar near Hamath, uh, north of Damascus, the battle itself was inclusive. Um, but it turned the Syrians back for time being. But nevertheless, it was a taste of things to come. Now, two of the contemporary prophets at that time, a fellow by the name of Micaiah, who was a contemporary of Elijah. The alliance against Assyria lasted only three years after the Battle of Karkar. And as the first book of Kings, chapter 22, opens, Ahab is conferring with Jehoshaphat of Judah about attacking Ramoth-Gilead. This is a transitional moment in prophecy. Micaiah speaks only what God tells him, even if it goes against royal wishes and the majority view. Um, the king had 400 of the sons of the prophets that he consulted about undertaking this battle against Ramoth Gilead. And they had all said, yes, yes, go ahead. God's on your side. But um, the king of Judah said, is there no one no other prophet um, that we can hear from. And uh, Ahab says, well, uh, there is this Micaiah guy, but he never um, tells me what I want to hear. Well, Asa said, let's, let's hear what he has to say. So he begins by saying, yes, go ahead. God's with you. But then um, Ahab pressed him, and um, he said, no, um, 
God is telling me that this is um, your moment of doom, which came true in the battle. Um, this is a transitional point where prophecy ceases to serve nationalism and it's popular to where it becomes associated with the idea of prophecy of proclaiming a message of doom against the nation. In time, this will become the badge of a true prophet. Then there was Elijah. The religious and cultural crisis of the time came to a head as a result of the aggressiveness of Ahab's wife. Uh, Jezebel um, got him to build a shrine to Baal in Solomon's temple. Or not in Solomon's temple, but in the, in the temple of Bethel and Dan. <clears throat> Ahab's was, position was not against Yahweh, is one of tolerance, giving his wife freedom of worship. Another uh, break coming up here, so I'll come back to that shortly. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. The White House Doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's time to transform your life. Start by tuning in to The Glenise Show with Glenise Hughes. Glenise combines business, relationships, wealth, life, and a whole lot of magic to create abundance and prosperity in every part of your life. It's all done through straight and often frank discussions in the best way that Glenise knows how. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Master your life with The Glenise Show. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's one 888 
346-9141. You may also send an email to defendingcatholicfaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Welcome back. I was talking about uh, getting it, just getting into the juicy part about Jezebel. Um, I think I'm going to talk now about, um, we'll come back to Jezebel next time. But um, the, the next 13 weeks, I will be continuing in this line of it's not a Bible study, but it's an attempt to show how the human um, dimension of all these these things are still with us just as much as they were at the time. And so that the issues that they were coping with, that they were de- dealing with, conflict between um, Baal as epitomized by Jezebel, um, we still have these continuing challenges to our Christian faith. Um, Different groups wanting to supplant um, Christianity with their own version of things. And so what I'm going to try to do in the coming weeks is um, to bring out accents, things like um, the mediums, which we still have with us. Um, And it all comes down to this. And Elijah is going to clarify this issue very, very well. Who is going to be your loyalty, Yahweh or Baal. And for Baal, substitute having other things that are going on in today's world. All competing for allegiance and loyalty. So I'll just wrap up with talking about Jezebel here. She was no shrinking violet. She was a fanatical evangelist. She gave Baalism a political that conflicted with the nationalism of the prophets of Yahweh. She launched a systematic campaign to eliminate all vestiges of Israel's faith, tearing down altars and killing the prophets. Loyalists had to go underground. And Elijah is the um, one who epitomizes that the most. Um, he came from across the other side of Jordan he was a rough character lived a semi-nomadic life he wore a garment of hair and a leather girdle which contrasted with the cultured life in the northern kingdom at that time uh, which because of its wealth through international trade um, wearing the latest fashions. Um, 
should also remind you of another one, John the Baptist. Um, chapter 1, verse 8. The king asked him, What was the man like who came up to you and said these things to you? Wearing a hairy garment, they replied, with a leather girl on his leather It is Elijah the Tishite. They have recognized the description immediately. Um, Ahab sent a captain with his fifty men after Elijah. The prophet was seated on the hilltop when he found him. Man of God, he ordered, the king commands you to come down. And the man of God, Elijah, answered the captain, May fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty men. Another fifty was sent after Elijah. The king commands you to come down immediately. If I am a man of God, Elijah answered him, May fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. The divine fire came down from heaven, consuming him and his fifty men. Well, that shows you how Elijah had to um, run for his life, as it were. The re- religious and cultural crisis of the time came to a head as a result of Ahab's wife. Um, it was she who launched a campaign to eliminate the prophets of Yahweh. Elijah's first act was to announce a drought in the name of Yahweh, thus challenging Baal on his own turf, fertility. But it's worth noting that um, Yahweh also controls fertility in Phoenicia as well. The widow of the story of the story of the widow of Zarephath. During the drought, uh, Elijah goes up into the territory of um, Tyre and Sidon and he meets with this this widow um, Zarephath and she's about to um, she has a little thing of olive oil and she's going to fix one last herself and her son and then they were going to die because of the drought but um Elijah uh, asked to stay with them, and as long as he's with them, um, the oil did not disappear, and the food did not disappear. So he's just is making a point in that story that Yahweh has control of fertility in Phoenicia as well as uh, in Israel. Um. Then comes the famous contest between 
Elijah and the other, the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And the issue is now clear cut. Either Yahweh or Baal is God, you can't both be God. And Elijah talks about the two different opinions. It's a good description of syncretism. The real climax of the story is not the killing of the Baal prophets under Cherem, which is um, the holy man. But the real climax of the story is the end of the drought. Elijah's flight from Jezebel's wrath is a touching portrayal of the despair that shadows faith. He makes his way back to Horeb, which is the, a name for Sinai in the northern kingdom, to where the whole thing started with Moses and the covenant. Um, and he has an encounter with God points to a renewal of Israel's faith at the source, but with a different Notice Elijah in this cave in Horeb, Mount Sinai, and there is a great um, earthquake, but God is not found in the earthquake. There's a roaring fire, but God is not found in the fire. It goes through all of these dramatic things which we tend to look for. Um, but um, he, he hears a still small voice and King James translates it, translates it. And this, on that, note, on that note, we're going to end for today and I'll come back to Elijah's flight from Jezebel's wrath and we begin next week and uh, may you escape the flu and have a good time God bless thank you for tuning in to Religious Faith and the Public Square please join Father John Holloman again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel We hope you have a very good week.